Excellent. Okay, no going back. Hebrews chapter 6. I have read Hebrews a lot, as you might guess, and uh, I worked my way through Hebrews chapter 6 a dozen or more times. Well, that's... I. I read it way more than that. But I mean, I literally was just sitting there talking to the Lord. Lord, what is, what is this about? Why is it here? And you guys remember, when I started the Hebrew study, what I wanted to do was I wanted to look at this in light of the New Covenant itself, not just as if it was some independent Bible study or independent biblical verses. And so I was stunned when I realized just a couple of days ago that having looked at this and looked at it and analyzed it and looked at the words and done all this, that I had fallen back into that trap of analyzing it as if it was an independent bit of Scripture. <laughs> it, it's so, when it hit me, what, what it's about, in light of the New Covenant, it was so easy and obvious that I was going, oh, this is great. But then it got exciting, because I really, 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 really did believe in, in, in what it was. So hopefully I'm going to be able to walk through this with you tonight. But as... as uh, calendar and coincidence would have it, and especially in light of everything that's going on in the country, I want to catch you up on uh, Juneteenth. How many of you feel like you have a good grasp of what Juneteenth is about? Okay, so we got like five or six people. Yeah, okay. Well, so here it is. Yes. Ray? I finally came in. I forgot. I missed 30 minutes. Okay, Ray, hang in there. Uh, All right, so Juneteenth. It's also called Emancipation Day or Freedom Day. Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Is that what you guys understood? Some of you probably looked it up. Uh, It dates back to 1865, which is an interesting date. And it's, fi- it's focused on Texas, particularly Galveston, Texas. Okay? Did you guys all know that? Cool. Well, you probably all know this then. So I'll power through it. It was on June 19th that the Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, landed at Galveston, Texas, with the news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. Now just let that sink in. The war is over and the enslaved are now free. Now this he did on June 19th, in, uh, 1865, but um, the odd part about that is that's two and a half years after President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So because of the, the, the distribution of soldiers and all this kind of stuff, it took two and a half years for the slaves to be free. Now, there's a lot of stories about why and so on and so forth. I'm not going to get into that. But nevertheless, the freedom that had become official in 1863 finally was applied to the uh, slaves and the slaveholders in Texas in 1865. So one of the things that General Granger first did as an order of business was to read to the people of Texas General Order Number 3, which began most significantly with this. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. Don't you like direct language? <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, man. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. Isn't that interesting? I love it. So, two years late, but nevertheless, got there. 
The reaction to this profound news ranged from pure shock to immediate jubilation. While many lingered to learn. Now, this is talking about while many of the former slaves. Okay. While many lingered to learn of this new employer to employee relationship, many left before these offers were completely off the lips of their former masters, attesting to the varying conditions of the plantations and the realization of freedom. Even with nowhere to go, many felt that leaving the plantation would be their first grasp at freedom. North was a logical destination for many, and it represented true freedom, while the desire to reach family members in neighboring states. And I think that's a very neat, heartfelt observation. While desiring to reach family members in the neighboring states drove some into Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Settling into these new areas as free men and women brought on, and, and now here's a euphemistic statement, I'm pretty sure. This is putting the best spin possible <laughs> on what actually happened. Settling into these new areas as free men and women brought on new realities and the challenges of establishing a heretofore non-existent status for black people in America. Keep that phrase in mind. A heretofore non-existent status for the black people in America. Recounting the memories of that great day in June of 1865 and its festivities would serve as a motivation as well as a release from the growing pressure encountered in their new territories. And there's another one of those sneaky statements in there, the growing pressure. There was obviously a, a lot of stuff, and then there was, uh, oh gosh, card beggars, and just tons of stuff to, to fight your way into freedom. And it took courage to do that. Uh, the temptation was there and understandable for some to stay. The temptation to you know go into places where slavery was a, one of the former ways of life because of family and all that kind of stuff. So I just thought this was amazing. And, and I, I do want to honor that. Now, it's my knowledge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is a state holiday in Texas that is celebrated in a lot of places, but it is not a national holiday yet. And so there's a movement going on right now to try to turn this into a national holiday. And considering that it's the final release of slaves officially, uh, there ought to be something that could be combined between uh, January 1st and, and June 19th. So I would totally be for that. And I can only imagine the profound emotions and, and the profound fears that ensued after this was, this was done. So anyway, praise God. The courage to choose freedom. That's what Hebrews chapter 6 is about. And so I'm trying not to piggyback so much and, and uh, co-op uh, a celebration, but I just do admire the courage. So we're going to just walk through this. And language is kind of important here. So I am going to be reading from David Bentley Hart's book because he's a little bit more uh, unpolished in his translation, but we'll get there. So let me open that up and be ready and get my glasses out. All right, so here's the first little section of Hebrews, and this is a, a bit of why I was having trouble with it. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. This is New American Standard. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. I had a little instance in my ministry and life not too many years ago. We were just getting ready. Uh, I, I, I had taken over a men's group in a church, and they were super paranoid about uh, um, my, my past as a vineyard pastor and about Pentecostal stuff and everything because it was a, just a regular Christian church. And so anyway, but they, they liked me and wanted me to uh, run the men's thing. 
So I just told them, I came into the men, I told the pastor, I said, so this is what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to get the men beyond the elementary teachings about Christ, maturity, laying a foundation, repentance, and dead works. Well, these things were the only thing that church taught. I mean, <laughs> they had no idea there was anything beyond this. And that's the way I've always looked at this. But now I understand there's a little bit of a different element here. The writer of Hebrews is calling the people he's writing to, and through them, us, to move beyond, in other words, to assume on these things in the proper way. Okay? That's... Okay, so here's the next one. The, the, if you don't do that, there's a fear of slipping back. Now, keep in mind, we're studying a chapter in the book of Hebrews, and the, the preeminent thing in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. That new covenant is talked about in chapter 8. His preeminence is talked about in Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. But I never saw it. I always just thought it was a comparison of the kind of doctrine you ought to have after you get out of your new member class or something like that, you know. Resurrection from the dead. That's what you talk. All right. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, this is New American Standard, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they first, or since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks, in, uh, drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, where I got meaning out of this passage of Scripture was when I was in Bible school, and I was in the Assemblies of God, and this was interpreted in various ways about impossible repentance, uh, uh, you know, the unforgivable sin, and the stage of the next, all this kind of stuff. And I realized, as I was, as I was struggling to try to say, Lord, what are you trying to say to us? Relative to the new covenant, why is this here? Are you real? Is it really just that arbitrary? Is it really just that if we, you know, what are we talking about? And then it dawned on me, oh, I've got to leave the context of this work. Okay, so I'm going to read from two different passages, uh, two different translations. This is from the complete Jewish Bible. Okay, and you'll notice in the highlighted parts, there's a lot in this verse that is speaking to the history of the of the, the, that the Jewish people, the Hebrews that he was writing to, who was writing this, it's linking it back to their life, their love. You know, it's it's the initial lessons about the Messiah. This is the way they translate it. Let us go on to maturity, not laying in the foundation of turning from works that lead to death, trusting God, instruction about washing, semicha, laying on hands. I think that's what that is. Uh, resurrection of the dead and eternal punishment, and God willing, we'll do it. For when people have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shares in Ruach HaKodesh. So this is, this is a religious context. It's not something that the Assemblies of God wrote in 1905. <laughs> this is the thing that, that people were struggling with as they were making this step from trusting in the, in the Mosaic Covenant to trusting in what he was advocating in his New Covenant. And it's another illustration of, of here was this, and here's this, here was this, and here's this. Now, there's a teaching going on here. There's a passionate teaching going on here by the writer of Hebrews, which probably was Paul, but maybe not. 
We don't really know. But look what's going on. So it, it all goes on down here. And then, and then I love the way they, they put this. So, and then have fallen away. In other words, when all this basic stuff, when they've pulled that out, then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them. Now, the, the New American Standard verse... <laughs> it's okay. It's a tech church. Don't worry about it. I know. I know. It's okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Anyway, this no problem. There's a teaching going on here in from here to here, and we need we need to watch that. And look at what it says in the New American Standard. It leads you the impression that. If you handle all this basic stuff and then you really get juiced up in the Holy Spirit and see some stuff and, and get some mirrors or, or something like that, and then you fall back, well, it's just tough. You can't, you can't. That's not what it, these guys are not, not translating that way. It says, it is impossible to renew them so that they turn from their sin as long as for themselves they keep executing the Son of God on the stake over and over again. All right. The next one will show a, a, a little bit better. I don't fully endorse everything that Kenneth Weiss says about this passage, but this last part down here, so that they turn from their sin. In other words, it's impossible to renew them so they turn from their sin. Because why? They've committed an unpardonable sin and God's not going to forgive them? No, because their heart is actively and currently and perpetually engaged in not letting go of these initial things and letting the new come. Okay, This is a big deal, I think. So here it is from Ken uh, Wiest. He's a Bible translator. Therefore, having put away once for all the beginning words of the Messiah, the first, and, and then now these are his comments, the first testament and animal blood and mosaic economy. So he's rooted in the same thought, that this first things is not the first things you learn in Sunday school at the Baptist church or the Assemblies of God church or in Bible college. It's, it's this continual connection and thought with the mosaic way of gaining righteousness, the mosaic way of living right. Let us be carried along to that which is complete. And he suggests that it's the New Testament and the blood of Jesus. Okay, I'm okay with him thinking that. I'm not making that point. Uh, not again laying down a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, teaching of abulations, imposition of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And he identifies those as doctrines of the Mosaic economy. Maybe. Uh, well, some of them certainly are. But, but that's not my main point. Here's the point that comes down at the end. I just want you to show that this isn't my original thought only. And this we will do if only God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been once for all enlightened and have both tasted of the heavenly gift and have become companions of the Holy Spirit, willingly being led along toward the act of faith and the pre-salvation work of the Holy Spirit. Now this is where he goes back into evangelical thinking and theology. And tasted the good word of God, also the powers or the miracles of the age that is about to come, and having fallen away again to renewing them to repentance, crucifying to themselves, to themselves the Son of God over and over again. So what I drew out of these two passages, and then reading, I'm going to read uh, David Bentley Hart to you. Therefore, departing from the elementary message about the anointed, let us press on towards full maturity, not establishing yet again the foundation, turning the heart from dead observances of faithfulness toward God, instructions regarding baptism, as well as laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and judgment of the age. And this will do if God permits, for it is impossible regarding those who have been illuminated and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers in Holy Spirit 
and having tasted of the goodness of God's word and the power of the age to come, and then having fallen away to restore them to a changed heart since they are themselves re-crucifying the Son of God and subjecting him to open disgrace. So the issue is not one of a person crossing a line into an unforgivable issue. The one is a person living in a state of double-mindedness and, and, and the resulting unbelief in that. Does that make sense? Now, I grew up blaming God for this. That he's, he'd drawn a line in the sand and said, man, you step across that line. No way. But I don't think that's what it says. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means that it's not possible while a person is still believing this to also believe that. Okay? Now, because repentance, the change of heart, is a change of heart. And if your heart is fully engaged in this direction, fully engaged is what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, that you got led there one time. I'm not saying that that's the influence like I had in my life where I thought this meant what I thought it meant or whatever. I'm talking about if after everything else, you still... Now, let me read a, a passage of Scripture out of Galatians that might make this a little clear. So this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written... Now, you guys know that Paul doesn't think the law is a curse. Our reaction to the law, burrowing into that to try to find a safe place to get righteousness, is, is the problem. Okay? Because Paul later goes on to say in Romans and other places, so did something that was uh, good become evil? No. All right? But, but there's a bigger point here. I, I'm... I don't want to spend too much more time, but I want you to understand what I think is the, the, the meaning more like this or like the way the Jewish Bible, uh, complete Jewish Bible put it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Keep that in mind. Okay, because in just a little bit, chapter 6 talks about Abraham. Uh, right down here it says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Okay? And uh, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later after Abraham, okay, that's the context, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. What Paul's saying is you can't get the promise through the law. And so what the New Covenant is about is the promise. It's not making the law an enemy. It's shifting the focus to where it belongs relative to the promise. Okay? Yeah, Ronnie. Please define the promise. Okay. Um, the promise in God's mind, right, right. So, so the first illustration of the promise, uh, in, in, in so many words, was probably the promised land, you know, going in there. Uh, but that's only the first illustration because the promise to Abraham was way earlier. And that promise was 
I'm going to bless every nation of the earth through you. What does that mean? To me, it means I'm going to give you back the life that you squandered. I'm going to give you back the identity that you obscured. I'm going to give you back the intimacy that you lost through fear. That's the promise. We could take it all the way back, especially the way Paul emphasizes seed. We could take it all the way back to where he says, your seed will crush his head, talking to the serpent. The promise is oneness. It's union with God. It's identity. It's sonship. It's family. It was going to take an incremental step forward at the promised land, and it did. But the promise is our oneness with God. Our identity is His sons. Our identification with the Word of the Father. The One who created us. Does it make sense? It's union. It's union. It's, it's, it's so simple and big that it's almost impossible to wrap your head around. The one promise is the seed of the woman will crush the head of Him. And all that I gave you, all the dominion, all the purpose, all the image bearing, it's never gonna, it's never gonna be taken away. The identity, as Dave and I talk frequently, isn't going to be changed by the mud on the outside. Sonny? So the promise of the Spirit would that, that be, be the vehicle, kind of how it's. The union is manifest in our life. I, I would, I would think it would be, uh, I would think it, it could be viewed accurately as a step in that process, or another incremental revelation, another thing that God does. But, but think about this: prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, "Have I been with you so long that uh, you don't know that when you see me, you've seen the Father?" So when Jesus was appeared, and when, I mean, when Jesus appeared and walked incarnate, that was another one of those steps, or the announcement of the angels. Uh, in Luke at, at Christmas, you know, uh, God is well pleased. Here is a blessing. Here is good news, great news. Okay, so all of these things are that way, and and the outpouring of the Spirit certainly, certainly was that from an intimacy standpoint. But so was uh, Jesus. You know, prior to that, breathing on the disciples, releasing them as the Father sent me, so send I you. We're built for intimacy. God's never lost sight of the fact that He was there. One of the things he told me in this, in this, as I've been studying this, because I was reflecting back on Genesis a little bit, is he says, you read scripture wrong there. He says, you act like I could only talk to Adam in the evening. He says, we walked all the time. I just held back a little bit to make sure that, that he knew when I came and said, where are you? That we could get to the point. You know, oh, that's cool. That's cool. So, it's the, it's the constant unfolding and reinforcing of this. You go back through the laws, they were all that way too. That was what that was for. It was, it was under the limitations of men's brokenness and fear of God and fear of the manifestation of the Lord on, on Sinai that they cried out for a mediator first in Moses. And then later, but it's the same issue. They cried out for a, a king when they didn't need a king. But they needed a king. They kept crying out for mediators. I'll tell you something, if you can hear it. One of the big failings of, of kind of Western evangelical theology is that we will rather have this as a mediator than an intimate relationship with God. 
And this is super important. This is super important, but it isn't the relationship. The relationship is with Him. It's, 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 it's seeing this and, 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 and hearing Him and going to Him. It's like, like this, I search Him, but then go to Him. So anyway, um, this thing in Galatians, the last one, is, okay, this is verse 23, and then we're going to move to the next chunk. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to a faith which was later to be revealed. All right, do you remember in Hebrews chapter 11, we'll get to it, it says that none of these received the promise because they were being, uh, they had to wait to be fulfilled with us. We'll get there in Hebrews chapter 11. That means that Abraham and Sarah and all of those that got the promises, everybody, they were on hold so that they could be fulfilled with something that was happening to us. That something was the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the release of the knowledge of God. We're all in this one big, gigantic, wonderful program. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be fulfilled by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. Ephesians says that before the foundation of the world, God uh, predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. He predestined Adam to be that, and that was cut short and derailed by what went on. He, He destined Cain to be that, and he didn't overcome sin crouching at the door. He destined the people of Noah's day to become that, and they didn't respond. He's destined us to be the same thing. That promise, so probably Ronnie, that would be the best answer I should have come up with. The promise is that we're all going to be conformed, or that the Father wants us all to be conformed to the image of His Son. I can. I can do that with a video. And no one will be the wiser. Um, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then it comes down here and says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And this is the point I want to make now, because I want to. All right, 9 through 12. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Now, I'm going to read, uh, matter of fact, I'm just going to read David Bentley Hart's version of it because it's cooler. The language is rougher, but it's cooler. Yes, brothers, even though we speak in this way, now, what way? We're warning you, don't get stuck in this preliminary revelation, but step from it into maturity. Okay? Yes, brothers, even though we speak in this way regarding you, we are... Actually, sorry, bad punctuation on my part. Yet, brothers, even though we speak in this way, comma, regarding you, we are persuaded of things that are better and that bring salvation. I love this translation. We are regard, uh, yes, brothers, even though we speak in this way, regarding you, we are persuaded of things that are better, comma, and that bring salvation. All my life, I was burdened interpreting these verses that salvation is the byproduct 
of me getting it right. I get it right because from the beginning, God predestined me to be conformed to the image of His Son. I get it right because very near the beginning, He declared, your seed, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. Now, everything played a role in that, including the Mosaic covenant, including the worship that flowed out of that when David got there. But what the writer here is doing some is doing something special, and he's asking those who were struggling. Because see, at one point in time, everybody in the first century that was being confronted with the gospel was being confronted with it, and it was almost impossible not to be seen as an either-or situation. And it's spoken of in terms of passing away, and this and that and the other, but Yes, brothers, even though we speak in this way regarding you, we are persuaded of things that are better and that bring salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love that you have shown toward his name in having ministered and ministering to the holy ones. You think that was just first century Christians, a few of them scratching around? Or do you think that God didn't... Do you think that God remembered, for instance, uh, Anna's faith in ministering to the people in the temple? Sure, that's why he showed her what he showed her. How about Simeon? How about the the trauma that was worked through when Mary turned up pregnant while betrothed to Joseph? You think God forgot about that? No. We don't have a God who sits back with his arms folded like Baxter Kruger says at the infinite distance of a disapproving heart. We have a God who gets his hands dirty in our lives and he's with us all the time. God didn't hold Sarah's mockery and unbelief against her. You can tell it in Hebrews 11. He saw that she had faith and bore a son. How about uh, Rahab? If I remember correctly, she wasn't a woman after God's own heart, but his heart was after her. And she opened her home and extended faith to those spies. Did God forget it? No, he recorded it. So here we are. Not, not a warning that paints God into a, a, a judgmental corner, but a beautiful expression. Um, where am I at here? Yeah, thank you. And we desire each of you, we desire of each you demonstrate and we desire each of you to demonstrate to the end the same earnestness for a full assurance of hope. Why? Why are we supposed to get this right? So that we don't have doubt. So that we're not pulled left and right, blown about by every wind of doctrine. So that we're not going, did I do enough? Have I done enough? Is that the way to go? Is this the way to go? No, God is not unjust so as to forget the work and love that you have shown toward his name and having ministered and ministering to the holy ones. And we desire each of you to demonstrate to the end the same earnestness for a full assurance of hope, 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 that you might become not dullards, but rather imitators of those who through faithfulness and longanimity are inheritors of the promise. What's the promise? I can answer confidently now, Ronnie, after just a little bit of interaction. It's being sons of God. It's being loved by God. It's knowing you're loved by God. It's, it's finding His embrace in the family, that dynamic family of triune love. That's what it is. That's the promise. 
We sell it short when we think it's a Cadillac or a, a new form of speaking in tongues. It's bigger than both of us. God might give you one of those. I'm not against it. But being a son, knowing you're a son, knowing that you're loved, that you're wrapped in that intimacy according to His desire, not your performance, His desire. Surely then, blessing, or saying, uh, oh, no, back up number four. Got to go to four. Okay, so here's the part that became the key for me, and I've kind of stumbled into it, so I don't know if I'll articulate properly. For when God made the promise to Abraham that all the earth would be blessed through him, and since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. It was a one-sided affair. Depending on how you look at it. Four-sided, maybe. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, this is, I think, referring to Abraham, he obtained the promise. But, all of a sudden, Abraham jumps into this picture in the same sort of weird way that Melchizedek jumps into the picture in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I didn't ever understand it because I wasn't looking at it in relationship to what was going on in the New Covenant. I was just looking at it as chunks of Scripture trying to figure out who Melchizedek was, which I knew from that section in, in Abraham's life. But here's what's happening. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, don't get trapped in that which was the tutor. But don't throw away your confidence in what God has committed forever, let's step back one foundational covenant earlier, which is the one with Abraham, because everybody under the law of Moses was in the loins of Abraham. And if you go through the study in Romans, Paul talks about that. He says the Levites were there, but it wasn't just the Levites. All of Israel came from Abraham. All of Israel. So the covenant of faith that Abraham represented was a covenant that blanketed all of the, the chaos and all of the beauty. And there was both with Moses because of the people being afraid, because of them going one way or another, because of the exile, because of all this stuff. So, uh, particularly Holly, you have made me really sensitive to this stuff. And I like it because I think I'm getting some understanding. But I also think that if we don't follow the advice and go back to the covenant that started the whole thing. And that's why I think Paul and Galatians moved from a tutor backwards, not forwards. And I feel like I'm starting to come to understand the, the magnificence and the security of the new covenant because it's not just a step forward away from something. It's a step back into the roots of faith that started this whole thing when God called Abraham out of the early Chaldees. Yes, Ronnie. There's an expression from a guy we know, Dutch Sheets. Uh -huh. He talked about the idea of when you're rowing, you're actually looking back into the future. Moving forward, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So you're rowing into the future, but you're looking behind you. And so see, I think it was short-sightedness that the writer of Hebrews was trying to get people to overcome. You know, because what had happened is the, the law of Moses always had come under the influence of the weakness of the people that were under that law. Paul said that what the law couldn't do through sinful flesh, 
God did by sending his son. And then he goes on to emphasize several times. So am I saying the law is bad? No. But it, it wasn't this. And so I think what the Hebrew, uh, writer to the Hebrews is saying is this is the better thing that relates to the promise. And the promise is what Abraham received. And so now it includes all this because everybody was in there. If, if the, the Levites and the tithe are included, so are all the other incremental steps of the promise. Does that make sense? It's kind of a... I don't know. I'm excited about it. Okay. So, this is Abraham. Here's... He's appealing to go back to that covenant. All right. Now, what's the roots of this? Is it Abraham's faith? Not really. Abraham's faith was in God. Even if you read in, uh, in other places in Scripture there in Romans early, it says that he looked long and hard at his body, realizing that he was beyond childbearing age. And so was Sarah. He looked at that long and hard. He didn't ignore it. This is a huge lesson for what faith is not. Faith is not ignoring reality. Faith is looking at reality with a clear gaze. And then Romans says, but he considered him who had promised to be faithful. That's what this is about. That's what the new covenant is. What the new covenant does is it puts us literally in that promise with Christ. Literally in it. We're not having to read a history or read a list of righteous regulations and apply them. We're being invited in. That's why God says, all of this is going to happen when we get to chapter 8. All of this is going to happen because I have mercy on your transgressions and your sins I will remember no more. Boom. That's done. That's why he also says that all shall know me from the least to the greatest. That's why he declares, not us. The children of Israel were like us. And we really have no reason to, to diss them. Because, you know, they said, everything that you say, we're going to do. Which kind of reflects me on Peter standing there the day, literally, of the Last Supper saying, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere and go everywhere. And Jesus, if you've never read uh, John 13, the end of it, and John 14, the beginning of it, and take out the chapter break in your mind, what it says is, Basically, uh, Peter makes that declaration and Jesus says, really? He says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But let not your heart be troubled. That's the first verse in John 14. That's cool. This is God's deal. And it's amazing. And the new covenant is the appointed final manifestation of the process that links us to the promise. The promise that was there when man fell. The promise that was there when Abraham was called. Really the promise that was there during the deliverance of the children of Israel by Moses. That was all part of the promise. And he stayed with it and he stayed with it. It was the when they wanted a king, they got one, but they didn't get the one that God gave them as part of the promise. That was David. David was a part of the promise. Jesus didn't come from Saul's line. 
in conveyance. So if we start where we get where we can track this thing, it's like a super beautiful deal. Let me read it. So for men, uh, six. Oh, yeah. Here it is. For men swear by what is greater, and the oath made as confirmation is an end to all dispute. Whereas God, wherein God, wishing to demonstrate more plenteously the immutability of his resolve to the heirs of the promise, interposed with an oath, so that by way of two immutable realities, we who have fled for refuge should have a mighty encouragement to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This isn't an admonition to abandon your faith in loving and following God. It isn't the way you used to. This is a mighty hope. A mighty hope. And it's not about you. It's not about that anymore. This isn't a two-sided deal where if you drop the ball, you get booted off the teeter-totter. And, and unfortunately, chapter 6 in my life have been interpreted that way a lot. This is much more of a, a proclamation of God's unquenchable commitment to raise sons than it is a threat to kick a bunch of people out if they fall off the bandwagon too early. To show the heirs of promise. It says here the unchangeableness of his purpose. I love what it says here. Because David, don't you heart use big words? Wishing to demonstrate more plenteously the immutability of his resolve to the heirs of the promise. Yes, Sterling. <laughs> uh, when you keep saying it's like back to the future, it's like trying to restore. I, I think of that relationship of Adam and Eve to God. Mm -hmm. It's much closer. It was familial. It was creator and the first created humans. Mm -hmm. You feel like there's something to that that is sort of the next step of this promise um, the regaining the regaining of that yeah. familial intimacy. I think so. I do, but I think it shows up all along the way. God, lo uh, uh, you know, loved Moses face to face like a man loves his friend. Yeah. Shall we? Uh, shall we withhold what we're going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah from uh, Sodom and Gomorrah from our friend Abraham? This friendship thing wasn't just introduced by Jesus in John chapter fifteen. It was stunning. When he talked about it, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. But it's part of this progress. It's part of this thing. That's the nature of the covenant. We are sons, but we are friends. We are family. We are children. All of these things are, I don't know if they're incremental or they're just subsets of that restorative process. That's subset of that promise. Yeah. I think we'll actually begin to experience in this life more intimacy than, than they than Adam and Eve had because they were immature and we're moving on to maturity, it says. Yes, Ryan. I don't know if the, if the question was the covenant with Abraham versus the relationship with Adam and Eve. Uh -huh. But did God make a covenant with Adam and Eve? Or was Abraham the first to have a covenant made? Uh, well, there's a, there's a covenant made with Noah. And 
you have to understand. Yeah, and it was sealed with uh, with the rainbow. But think about this. I've thought about this a lot. I've talked to a lot of people about it. Not everybody agrees with me. But uh, they will eventually. When you're talking about origins, you can't apply the same subcategories to origins. In other words, Adam and Eve didn't need a covenant with God because everything they had was what a covenant is. In other words, they didn't, they didn't have a legal arrangement with God. So they didn't need a covenant to spell that legal arrangement out. They were in Him. They were, they were, you know, in other words, everything that we would hope to have from a covenant, they had naturally without having to define it as a covenant because that's how they were made. And that was what was happening. When they violated the relationship, then that made room to define something other or something that they had lost and recapture that with a covenant. Does that make sense? So like they didn't they didn't they didn't have devotions because they never had tried to live independent of God. You know? They didn't have um, a zoological table because they lived it. They made it. They were the ones in that place where their word was defining the platypus. I wish I could see that day someday. How'd you come up with that one? Or was that left over at the end? And all of a sudden you just repositioned the pieces and went with it. Do you see what I'm saying? So a lot of people talk about how there was a covenant of creation, but usually that language comes from kind of a judicial sort of thought of theology. And then the reason that you need a covenant in that theology is because you have to have a violation of it to define what went on because it's not relational. Does that make sense? So I would say that all covenants are limited somewhat expressions of what God made Adam and Eve with in the first place. Yes, Vicki? Would, in reference to Ronnie's question, would it be that prior to Adam and Eve partaking of the tree of good and, I'm sorry, of uh, knowledge, knowledge. Um, the knowledge they were living under the tree of life, which was, that was just life. I mean, that was the natural way to be. We're sort of in an unnatural way of being, yeah. having come under that, yes, the tree of knowledge. Yeah. Things have been turned upside down yeah. or something. Uh, yeah. They were also living under the knowledge of good and evil. It just wasn't their responsibility. It was God's. Right. It was God's. When they took that responsibility independently, then all of a sudden now you've got two sides where you could you could create mm-hmm. a covenant. But but so yeah, what we hope out of a covenant. So will covenants are born. Hmm? Covenants are born out of. No, the tree of knowledge then. Not necessarily. Right. It could be. I, I don't was know. there a, well because Ronnie was asking, is there was there a covenant yeah. with Adam and Eve? I would say, no. No, but but. But then there were covenants anything that a covenant could ever be, that. they had. Okay. Yeah, anything that a covenant could ever become, they had. But they had it in immaturity, I think, and that's why. I mean, the whole. Anyway, that's a good good question, and that's both are good good follow-ups. The covenant's not the ideal situation. The ideal situation is living in family, living as sons. 
and 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 that's why the thing that covenants are created biblically to overcome, which is sin and division and stuff. That's why the new covenant deals with that in such an aggressive way. I'll have mercy on your transgressions and your sins I will remember no more. So literally, as we get further in Hebrews, into Hebrews chapter 9, it's going to say that, so because of all that Jesus did in the, in the tabernacle and his blood and so on and so forth, he's coming again a second time without reference to sin. Sin will not be an issue. It will not be a constituent part of the covenant. And so, when, when Jesus rules until all the enemies are under his feet, and then he takes all those kingdoms and gives them to his Father, I don't think there'll be a need for a covenant to govern that relationship. It'll be the relationship that we were all made to in the first place. Okay. All right. So we got that. Last, oops, last of it. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. So this chapter started talking about, you know, we need to go beyond this, and if you don't do it, you're going to be like a piece of property that gets burnt because it produces thistles. Now it's talking about hope, and it's talking about Jesus, and it's talking about Melchizedek. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that was always pretty confusing language to me. But in this context, I'm beginning to see what it means. Let me read it from David Bentley Hart. Which we have, well, let's see here. Yeah, which we have as an anchor for the soul, safe and unyielding, and which also enters within the veil. What does that bring together? Safe and unyielding, an anchor. That, that's an, an image of something that digs into the dirt to hold you where you're supposed to be, the seafloor or whatever. But in the very same breath, it's through the veil. The link between earth and heaven. The fulfillment of Jesus' request for us to pray, thy kingdom come uh, on earth as it is in heaven, is fulfilled in this thing in Jesus, in this covenant. It's stunning. Which we have as an anchor for the soul. Who has it? The people that were being warned, but who the writer said, but we, uh, we have better thoughts about you, things that will bring salvation. God's not working to sort out the people that deserve to be burned. He is doing everything and has done everything to get us through the veil with security, which we have as an anchor for the soul, safe and unyielding, which also enters within the veil. And now what's special about going within the veil? Okay, It's not just going to heaven. It's not just going to some spiritual place. Later on, we're going to see that we come to Mount Zion, to the spirits of men made perfect, to angels, myriad of angels, all stuff. That's not what makes it special. This is what makes it special. Where Jesus entered as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek until the age. All right. Now, I still don't know enough about Melchizedek to feel confident about talking about him, but I know one thing about him. 
He received a blessing from Abraham and he blessed Abraham. He brought out wine and bread. Now, I've read commentaries and good guys I like says don't make the mistake of linking this with communion. I think that is freaking absurd. <laughs> that is totally absurd. We're in a book in Hebrews that is talking about nothing except the blood of Christ. And Jesus finishes up his time with the disciples by serving those elements. He precedes that by putting the pressure on everybody that was following, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have nothing of me. I think it's bizarre to see that, to not see that connected. When the same book that's talking about nothing but the blood of Jesus says really functionally what Hebrews is saying is the only reason there's a story about Melchizedek in the Bible is so that you'll know the kind of priest that Jesus is and that it's linked back to the promise with Abraham. Anyway, Ronnie? A lot of what you just did to tie things together, at least in my mind and mm -hmm. heart, was to the word which I try to put everything through now, relationship. Mm -hmm. So the priest going behind the veil got to meet with God directly, face-to-face. Mm -hmm. -face. Mm -hmm. sure. All got these to things meet get redeemed. Face-to-face. -face. Yeah. So somewhere in the Bible, in Scripture or through God telling us, we've got to learn and find out that Melchizedek had an awesome relationship with God. Yeah. Somewhere. And of course, if you go back and you read the description, it seems so. It seems so. And then there's, there's all kinds of speculation about that, which I'm not qualified to either say yes or no on right now. But I'm just, I'm, I'm digging in. I'm learning. Because I want to know, and I, I don't want to know as an ob objective bit of trivia. I want to know because of what you just said. I want to know what's the relationship. What can I do? So, um, very briefly, one minute. We had a, an ascension here a couple of weeks ago, and it was uh, there, uh, there was a gal that uh, came on uh, for the first time. She had heard about Paul Young and, and being, you know, at our church a few weeks before. And uh, anyway, so she this was her first experience with Joyland, first experience ascension, and it was one of those wild and crazy ascensions where. Uh, Abraham, Melchizedek, and Enoch showed up. And uh, she was blown out of the water. And fortunately, we got a chance to follow up with her. But I, I was spending time praying that night. It was Wednesday. Spending the night praying that night, saying, Lord, you know, do you want me just to organize some newbie ascensions where we just stick to knowing Jesus? Would you do that if we ask? And, you know, so we don't blow these folks out. And uh, I, I did, because of Kristen uh, Velas. I did get a chance to communicate back through her with him, with the gal, and we talked about stuff and linked it with some of Paul's things. And it was pretty cool. I think we'll still see her. So my pastor's heart was semi-satisfied. I get up the next morning, and I'm uh, sitting down with my journal, and I had put a to-do list on my thing. I want to talk to the Lord about my leadership as a pastor regarding ascensions. So I got in that conversation with God that morning, and I had communion there. And there's this place, if you've heard me before, where I, I frequently see myself meeting with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, I, think it's, I think it's that thing in Revelation where it says, you know, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open, I'll come in. So I think it's that place. I don't think it's in heaven. I think it's in my heart. But nevertheless, I'm sitting there, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are there. We're having a wonderful time. I raise this question, 
And uh, Jesus says, oh, I have some, some uh, guests. And he opens the door, and here comes Abraham, Melchizedek, and Enoch. And don't ask me how I know those who they are. But I laughed, because God's got such a sense of humor. Because <laughs> I was just contemplating the, 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 the willingness, if needed, to, uh, to just say, Lord, come and And what Jesus said, he said, I just want you to receive a blessing. And so um, Abraham reached out and blessed me with faith. Or, yeah, with faith. And Melchizedek reached out and blessed me with peace. And Enoch blessed me with intimacy. And then they just left. They all had a smile on their face. And it was a really astounding time. So if you understand what I'm saying at all, you'll understand what I'm saying. <laughs> God has a great sense of humor. If you don't, just just trust me that it's uh, something I made up while I was praying and having my devotionals. 